Welcome to the public morality. By now, many of you are already familiar with the recorded phone conversation between former President Donald Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where the former president appealed to the Secretary of State to find 11,780 votes. But the investigative reporting by authors Michael Lizakoff and Daniel Clydman in their new book, Find Me the Votes, a hard-charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election illustrates a saga well beyond the rational thinking of most. It is my honor to welcome them to the public morality. Michael Lizakoff, Daniel Kleiman, welcome to the public morality. Thanks Good to be with you. First of all, congratulations on a wonderful book. I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, Daniel, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to begin with a passage from the prologue and have you comment on the other end. They mentioned my kids by name. The digitally altered voice was creepy, but it was the words that were the most chilling. It was mid-August 2023, and Fonnie Willis was riding in a black SUV with Nathan Wade, the special counsel in charge of her offices uh, investigating into Donald Trump. Now, aside from talking about Nathan Wade, which we will probably discuss later, why is that sentence, that, that, that passage, rather so significant? Well, it's significant because uh, Fonnie Willis um, was uh, the target of the most extraordinary uh, threats um, uh, in Georgia during the course of this prosecution, but representative of uh, a, 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 a campaign of vicious threats, many of them racist, many of them sexualized, all of them hateful, that rain down on, on uh, Georgians um, uh, for, for weeks um, uh, and months after the, um, uh, and actually in years, because the passage that you uh, referred to happened, that happened in August of 2023, uh, but in the wake of the uh, 2020 election, the, uh, the, there was a uh, a climate of fear um, generated in Georgia that was so pervasive um, in the aftermath of, of the election that you know it became a hugely important uh, part of the story. Um, and you know, ironically, Fonnie Willis, uh, when she was getting those terrible threats, and and I want to, I'm going to elaborate on them in a second, but. At the very same time she was doing that, she was methodically investigating as part of her um, racketeering case uh, these threats against people in 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 Georgia poll workers like Ruby Freeman uh, and um, and Shea Moss, her daughter, um, who had to go. Ruby Freeman had to go into hiding at the urging of the FBI. Her daughter uh, had to uh, change her appearance. I mean, you know, this was so corrosive and so corrosive to, at the end of the day, to to democracy. Look, the point of this uh, campaign that that uh, that, as Fonnie Willis saw it, uh, that, that that was being um, run by by Donald Trump and his Confederates was to essentially deprive people of their vote. Um, and you know, this is Georgia, a state. Uh, that for a hundred years under Jim Crow denied black people the vote. So it's a very important part of this book. I, I just want to quickly, um, you know, in, in the aftermath of, of those threats, which were coming into Fonnie Willis's cell phone, her personal phone, wherever she was, uh, over and over again by this particular person with his uh, computer disguised voice, right after that, her security team gets a, uh, a, a sees a, a threat on a MAGA website, um, an assassination threat. Uh, the best time to shoot her is when she leaves the building, it said. And so they set up an elaborate operation to protect her and smuggle her out of the building. It was one of the most dramatic things that we uncovered in the course of our reporting. On the night of the indictment um, in August of 2023, August 15th, um, it's a midnight uh, press conference that she's giving. And right after the press conference, she and her team go to a back office. Bonnie Willis changes from her work attire into 
sweats and a t-shirt and a baseball cap. Meanwhile, she's got a body double, uh, a investigator on her staff who is about the same size as, as her. And she chains in, changes into clothes resembling what Fonnie Willis had been working, a black business suit, a string of pearls, uh, pumps, and a black bob wig to, so that she looked like uh, uh, Fonnie Willis. Now, the body double and and men posing um, as as her deputies, uh, they leave the building uh, the the normal way and they get into official SUVs and um, and 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 leave the courthouse. Fonnie Willis and her actual team posing as civilians, they sneak out the back of the courthouse, get into unmarked civilian sedans, and are taken to uh, an un undisclosed location. It, it, it's a striking moment and and it's it's you get a sense of uh what the stakes were investigating this case against Donald Trump and his confederates and just just for our listeners as you guys um uh, re uh reported in your text uh the body double was wearing a kevlar vest is that correct that's an important point to make i should i should have mentioned that yes underneath it she had a, a kevlar vest and so that was something that fonnie willis insisted on uh she certainly wanted to be protected but she really also wanted uh this body double to be protected michael lizakoff anything you'd like to add to that sir yeah i mean i'm just saying that is such a uh, amazing uh, story that was unknown to those of us both danny and i along with the rest of the press corps were waiting breathlessly that night in august for the indictment and we all gathered for the press conference midnight press conference and uh, and none of us had any idea of this you know dramatic <laughs> escape uh, decoy operation that was going on behind the scenes but it's reported for the first time in the book and i I should say that the, the the threats permeate every aspect of this case. As Danny mentioned, you know, it, the, the threats to people like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were very much a part of what Fonnie Willis was investigating, but it also hindered her ability, the threats to um, uh, uh, to pursue the investigation. You know, Trump from the beginning was 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 stirring his people up, you know, calling Fonnie Willis a radical, a Marxist, um, uh, and, you know, making all sorts of unfounded allegations about her. Uh, and that leads to this avalanche of threats. And Fonnie Willis uh, getting to Nathan Wade because you mentioned him, he wasn't her first choice to be the special prosecutor in, her, in, in charge of the case. He wasn't even her second choice. Um, she was reaching out to high profile people like Roy Barnes, the former Democratic governor of Georgia, uh, and was getting turned down. Why? Because of these threats. In fact, Roy Barnes's quote to us is, hypothetically speaking, would you want a bodyguard to have to follow you around for the rest of your life? Um, there was another federal, very highly regarded former federal prosecutor who she reached out to, turned her down for the same reason. You know, his, his wife was concerned about the, you know, the threats uh, to their family that, uh, uh, that they would get if he took the job. So, you know, the the Fonnie Willis begins by investigating some of these really horrific threats to people, and it ends up uh, being turned not just against her, but people she was trying to get to do the case. And I think it underscores just you know what a um, how much a, a how how big a part the threats played in every aspect of this case. Mike, I'll, I'll stay with you. Um, one of the aspects of the book that I personally appreciated was the time the two of you took that you dedicated to provide the reader with a richer illustration of some of the key players. Uh, we see Fonnie Willis beyond the hard-charging uh, district attorney uh, persona. We also see... Uh, see her as a daughter of a single parent. We see her as a single parent herself. Uh, you did the same thing with uh, Secretary of State um, Brad Reffensberger. Uh, talk about why it was important to provide this component to the text. 
Well, because, I mean, you know, these are real people with, you know, pretty interesting backstories. I mean, everybody involved in this case, Brad Raffensperger, loyal conservative Republican, one of the first as a state legislator, he was one of the first to endorse Donald Trump when he was running in 2016, one of the first in the legislature to um, uh, to back Trump. He admired Trump. He thought he was this, you know, amazing businessman. He wasn't a big fan of the way he talked, but he figured, you know, maybe we need somebody to shake things up. And Trump endorsed him when he ran for secretary of state, tweeted, you know, urging people to um, uh, back um, uh, to back Brad Raffensperger. When, but when Trump was demanding that he cross the line, um, Raffensperger uh, uh, pushed back. Um, uh, he was not going to do Donald Trump's bidding if it violated his uh, his 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 duty as Secretary of State to accurately count the votes uh, in the election. And he had a steely edge that really um, you know made a difference. And you know we describe him as part of this Republican stone wall of resistance to Trump. I mean, look, Georgia was ground zero for everything that unfolded leading directly to January 6th. It's where Trump's uh, 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 Trump's efforts to alter pressure campaign was most furious, most intense, most concentrated. And he figured, you know, everybody in Georgia, they're all Republicans. I back them. They back me. So, of course, they're going to do my bidding. But in fact, it was exactly the opposite. And it wasn't just Raffensperger. You know, Brian Kemp, the Republican governor, as we quote, you know, said uh, F him uh, when he was uh, uh, to to uh, Trump and his allies when they were demanding that um, he back uh, that Georgia back this Texas lawsuit to challenge the results of the election. Chris Carr, the Republican attorney general, vowed to resign if he had to if he was being asked or forced to defend Trump's call for a special session of the legislature. And of course, most of all, Jordan Fuchs, not a name that very many people know. She was the chief of staff to Brad Raffensperger, this young Republican consultant, 30 years old, who on her own made that fateful decision to tape the phone call that Trump made to Raffensperger, where he pressures him to find him the votes that would put him over the top in Georgia. And it was a pretty gutsy move by her part. She didn't tell Raffensperger. She didn't tell Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, who had contacted her to set up the phone call. Um, and uh, yet uh, uh, she knew the risks that Raffensperger faced talking to Donald Trump with his propensity to distort whatever might get said on that phone call. And so she did that tape. And thanks to her, you know, we have the single most compelling evidence of Trump's pressure on Byron, state let me, officials. Let me, let me just make just one last kind of thematic point about this and why we thought it was so important to flesh out these characters as, as real people. You know, we are living in perilous times. Um, and, and you know, but for those people who were willing to uh, stand um, in the breach, you know, to, to, to hold back uh, the, the, the attacks, who knows where we would be? As Mike pointed out, um, the, you know, if Jordan Fuchs hadn't taped that call at great risk to herself, we wouldn't have had the evidence. Uh, there may not that there may not have been a case uh, in in Georgia, or at least a case that um, you know is is a pretty seems to be a pretty strong case. So it is those people who do extraordinary things um, that uh, that make the difference, and um, and that we thought was important uh, to focus on and uh, and tell people who they are. And and how they uh, developed the kind of metal that they did to do these things. Well, following up with that, I'll stay with you, Daniel. Following up, um, uh, I was going to mention Jordan Fuchs early later. I'm, I'm I'm glad Michael brought it up. Uh, can can you give us some insight on what about the loyalty and some background to the loyalty of jo Jordan Fuchs? Because as, as I understand it, what she did 
because she was actually in Florida when she taped the phone call. That was a violation of the law. So she put herself in, in perhaps criminal jeopardy. So where does that where did that type of loyalty originate? Well, look, loyalty is the right word. Uh, what she did uh, was loyal uh, to to her boss, uh, Brad Raffsenberger, uh, because she knew that uh, if that call had not been taped, uh, Donald Trump would have come out. In fact, he did until the tape was released and distort everything that had happened on that conversation to advance his own uh, political interests. Um, and, you know, and, and it's it's loyalty, but it's also sacrifice because she was, as you point out, exposing herself to legal jeopardy uh, uh, because um, uh, because it was a two party uh, consent state. But it was also loyal to her own uh, personal convictions um, and uh, and and, you know, beliefs uh, that um, that the that the uh, that what was happening was was just wrong. I'll let Mike speak to who, who spent more time, you know, focusing on on Jordan Fuchs, speak to how she developed uh, those particular qualities. But loyalty is is a good word to describe her. Yeah. And very quickly, look, I mean, she was trying to protect the boss. I mean, she knew the risks that Raffensperger faced. I mean, Trump, the Trump campaign was suing Raffensperger and the secretary of state's office. So, yeah, it was problematic to get on the call at all. In fact, they had been ducking a phone call from Trump for weeks. But, you know, at the last minute, um, uh, you know, there's a direct request from the president through his chief of staff to talk to the secretary. And they figured, OK, this is, uh, you know, the president really uh, is uh, is seeking this. And they finally agreed. But the, you know, um, uh, Jordan Fuchs wanted that insurance policy of having the tape. And, uh, you know, thanks to her, um, we have the words of the president of the United States. Well, well Michael, was this give us a, a sort of a time frame. Was this at the same time that uh, the Raffensperger home was getting some very, very um nasty, threatening phone calls and text messages, especially to Brad Raffensperger's wife. So is that yeah, around that, the same time? Actually, uh, that happened in November. That happened right after Kelly Leffler and 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 David Perdue, the two Republican senators in Georgia, um, I, I put out a statement demanding that Raffensperger resign immediately. It's worth noting why they did so, because Don Trump, Donald Trump Jr. had flown down to Atlanta and basically in meetings at the Buckhead Republican Party headquarters, basically said, you back my president's, my father's efforts to uh, uh, to challenge this election or um, he will tank uh, your your uh, runoff chances in in January. Purdue and Leffler were facing um, a runoff in 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 early January, in which control of the U.S. Senate was at stake, and Trump was willing to throw all that away unless um, uh, Republicans uh, backed his efforts over the election. And, you know, sure enough, you know, Leffler and Purdue fell in line. And immediately that night, the night they put out that statement is when those horrible uh, messages on Trisha Raffensperger's cell phone um, uh, began popping up one after another, as though it was all orchestrated, you know, sexualized threats, you know, all sorts of horrific um, uh, language. And we quote from them in the um, uh in the book. And then, you know, in the ensuing weeks, the Proud Boys show up at Raffensperger's house. Uh, you know, the MAGA warriors start harassing their daughter-in-law and break into her house. Raffensperger and his family flee their own house uh, for Thanksgiving. So, but getting back to, to Jordan Fuchs's motivation, she watched all this. She was living through all this, um, the threats to her boss. So it was like one more um, uh, a piece of, uh, uh, of the mosaic that prompted her to tape that phone call. You know, Daniel, you know, we, we, we know about the, the famous um, 11,780 vote phone call. And I'm not sure, um, is this the same phone call or was it a different phone call? But talk about the port, the conversation that President Trump had with Raffensperger right after the death of Raffensperger's future son-in-law. 
I, uh, I, I think you're talking that's, about Brian that's, Kemp. That's Brian Kemp, right? I'm sorry, Brian Kemp. I'm sorry, Brian Kemp. I'm no, no. I'm yeah. I'm sorry, Brian Kemp. Right after Brian Kemp. I'm my, my, my apologies. Yeah, yeah. That that uh that phone call. Um, uh, Mike Winwood. That was I believe that was dis- It was in early December. Early, yeah, that that's yeah. right. I think it was early December. That that phone call was in early December. Uh, I think Trump was uh, actually on his way down. Uh, to do a, uh, a a rally in in Valdosta, which was December third, uh, Trump had had uh, was 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 uh, you know believed hoped uh, that uh, that Brian Kemp would uh, would uh, call a special session of the legislature to overturn the vote. Now you, you know Trump was uh, obsessed with Georgia uh, because yeah he 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 knew that Georgia. Uh, was, um, you know, possibly a, a key to being able to t- overturn the election in other states as well. He was hoping for a kind of domino effect. You get Georgia, then you get Pennsylvania, you get Pennsylvania, then you get uh, Michigan. Um, and so he was intensely focused on on Georgia. Um, and um, he also thought he had leverage there because the government, uh, all the way up and down from the governor's mansion to the legislature, uh, the Secretary of State's office, of course, the two uh, U.S. senators at, uh, were, were Republicans. That he that he would have uh, people in place to do his bidding. Well, it turned out he was wrong. He was wrong about about Brian Kemp. He was really wrong about a, a lot of them. Um, and so he was furiously uh, lobbying Brian Kemp uh, to bring back the legislature to do this uh, special session, and Brian Kemp was resisting. He finally calls him to put more pressure on him, and of course, he knows that Brian Kemp's you know, future son-in-law had been had been killed. And so, in a very perfunctory way, uh, Trump says, "Gee, I'm sorry about your loss," and immediately moves on to start uh, badgering him about what he thinks he ought to do to help him overturn the election. Uh, and, you know, Kemp didn't say anything uh, directly to him, but I think we have a good sense of what Kemp was thinking at the time, the audaciousness uh, of of Trump uh, to do this at this particular time. Uh, ultimately, we, we, we say um, in the book, we report that uh, that uh, that that Kemp uh, Kemp's response to Trump was ethem. Um, that was his response to uh, what Trump was trying to get him to do. And of course, um, as we talked about before, he didn't. Uh, Michael, going back once again to the 11,780 votes, in your investigation, was former President Trump trying to add votes to his total or was he trying to to detract votes from uh, then-candidate uh, Joe Biden? <laughs> I don't think he care either way he just wanted georgia's uh electoral votes it's as simple as that i mean if you look at the phone call and by the way we you know we spent a lot of time dissecting that phone call and it is worth going through one more time because he is trying every possible trick he's got to get raffensperger he starts out cajoling him then he turns to ridiculing him then he turns to berating him and threatening him him. Uh, I mean, it, it goes in stages. And he starts out the phone call citing all these claims of illegal votes that were cast for Joe Biden from out of state voters, from dead voters, from, you know, um, uh, voters who weren't registered. And Raffensperger shoots him down at every stage, says, no, we've looked at every one of these. And the data you have is wrong. So I guess in that sense, maybe Trump figured, you know, Raffensperger should throw out all these supposedly illegal votes and then that would put him um, over the top. But as I said, I don't think he cared. I think it was just like, you know, he wanted to win Georgia. The clock, remember, it's January 2nd. The clock is ticking towards January 6th. Um, and uh, they knew the time, the, their time to, 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 
challenge the election was was ticking away and they needed a win somewhere. And they looked at the landscape of battleground states and they figured Georgia is our best bet. It's the closest. They're all Republicans. If I really turn up the heat, they'll cave and go with me. And he was colossally wrong. So because Georgia in itself does not get uh, former president's 270 electoral votes. So the thinking was Georgia would be Georgia begats Pennsylvania, right. Pennsylvania begats Michigan, Michigan yeah. begats Wisconsin. So, so yeah, we, we call it a, a, a domestic political version of the old Cold War domino theory that, you know, you get one domino to fall and then all the rest will follow suit afterwards. And they figured Georgia was their best bet. You know, Daniel, I'll come back to you. I, it, it doesn't seem it seems more than a coincidence that when the question came up about, say, Pennsylvania's votes, it was really a question about Philadelphia's votes in, in Michigan. It was about Detroit's votes in Wisconsin. It was about Milwaukee's votes. And obviously in, in Georgia it was about Atlanta's votes. And it, it seems more than a coincidence that these are also areas that possess large segments of African-American voters. So your, your thoughts on that? Look, the, the racial dimension to this story is very important. You are exactly right, Byron. Uh, the, the Trump focused on uh, urban populations and big American cities, large black populations. So all the places that you mentioned, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit, and not just uh, Atlanta, but he really focused in on on Fulton County. Fulton County, which is a uh, comprises most of Atlanta and is is uh, is majority uh, majority black. And there was a insinuation of of of, of race um, in so much of what Trump and the people around him were saying. You you take Rudy Giuliani, uh, and when um, when he was spreading around uh, the um, uh, the video, uh, the sliced and diced video uh, 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 of Ru of Ruby Freeman and and her daughter uh, Shea Moss um, from uh, the um, from election night, uh, the, you know this idea that they had been taking suitcases out from under under a table and and stuffing ballots and um, and and so on and so forth. The language that they use to describe uh, uh, Ruby Freeman and and Shea Boss um, is uh, they're all dog whistles. They're all racial dog whistles. You know, Trump is calling them scammers, and 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 Giuliani is calling them uh, you know drug dealers that that they're passing around vials of heroin um, and and cocaine, um, and it's it's unmistakable. Um, and you know, look, part of this um, is. You know, goes way back in 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 you know certain uh, eras of Republican politics and conservative politics to sort of you know rile up uh, white voters on the basis of race. It's a, it's an old playbook, um, and you saw it again, but in pretty crude uh, terms. Um, and of course, that is it has to be at least in part, if not largely, responsible for the uh, the the torrent. Of racial threats that people like uh, uh, people like uh, Ruby Freeman and her daughter were getting, and many other poll workers and election administrators uh, in Atlanta, you know, during that period. Where and by the way, as we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, um, Fonnie Willis herself, you know, so many of these of these uh, threats, and we we have listened to and we have a lot of the the audio recordings and the emails are about lynchings. You know, we're going to lynch you. We're going to, you know, uh, uh, uses of the N-word over and over again. Um, we're going to uh, tie you to a truck and drag you through the streets uh, of Atlanta. And so, you know, a lot of what was going on, you know, it, you know, sort of we talk about how there was a sort of a toxic brew um, in, in, in Georgia at this time that, that really uh, sort of brought back some of the um, – the old ghosts uh, of, of Jim Crow um, kind of just lurking uh, beneath the surface. Um, it was unmistakable and um, and and it, and and it is part of the human story that we wanted to tell.
And I should just add that Trump was obsessed with uh, uh, Fulton County and in particular, the African-American election workers who got falsely targeted and accused by Rudy Giuliani in that phone call with Raffensperger. He mentions Rudy Ruby Freeman 18 times. He's obsessed with her. Well, Michael, let me just stay with you. Um, Talk about. H.M. County in Michigan and the role it played in Team Trump's conspiracy theory arguments in Georgia and why it was Coffee County so critical in that plot. Well, this gets back to a, a story we tell in great detail in the book, which is the uh, uh, equal obsession on getting a hold of Dominion voting machines, right? I mean, um, Sidney Powell has thrown out these fantastic allegations about Hugo Chavez socialists secretly planting uh, uh, al- uh, algorithms in uh, Dominion voting machines that flip votes from the Trump to Biden. Biden, never mind that Hugo Chavez is, was long dead at the time of the 2020 election. Um, so this led to uh, Sidney Powell is like, we need to get hold of those Dominion voting machines. And uh, within a week uh, or so of the election um, uh, in um, uh uh, in, in Northern Virginia, she's proposing uh, criminal break-ins of election offices around the country, in Georgia and in other ba- uh, uh, battleground states. Uh, and then, because it would obviously be illegal to break into those offices and steal the software, um, she would protect those operatives. Those operatives would be protected by so-called hunting licenses, which were basically preemptive presidential pardons that Trump would give so his operatives could go in and steal the software. Now, um, that strikes a lot of people as crazy, and even Rudy Giuliani uh, saw it as going too far. But as we try Trace, I mean, uh, the events led from that proposal um, through a lot of twists and turns, including Antrim County, where there was some screw up in the vote count, uh, which was a Dominion uh, uh, machine uh, jurisdiction. And, you know, they had to fix the vote count there. It was actually human error. It had nothing to do with the software and the machines. But this all leads ultimately to the Coffee County raid, which was a real break in, uh, a real computer heist by Trump operatives on January 7th, uh, in which Sidney Powell uh, footed the bill for the whole thing and has since uh, pled guilty to doing so. So um, the extra legal methods that the Trump crowd was prepared to go uh, went pretty far and actually, in the case of Georgia, um, you know, became reality. And, and, and by the way, just started literally days after the election. You know, it wasn't like uh, they tried all of the legal means before getting to the the illegal. They were talking about criminal break-ins days after the election. And just uh, for the record, it's my understanding that the individual in Antrim County in Michigan who who committed the error caught the error, acknowledged it, and and gave a public apology like days after she made the, the clerical error. Is that correct? That that is my understanding of what happened. Yes, okay. and and look, these these are things that happen in elections. Uh, you know, every cycle. Uh, it, you know, and 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 yet uh, they they loomed large for the Trump people. Uh, they seized on on Antrim. Uh, they thought it was evidence of uh, a a corrupt system um, throughout uh, the country, um, and 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 they went to to the races from that from there. Uh, you have, Daniel, a, a number of of passages in the text where left left my mouth open. Um, one of them, uh, and these are my words, is the strange behavior of South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, um, <laughs> who called his grand jury testimony a catharsis. Could could you talk about that story, please? Yeah, that you know that's a story that that uh, I think has really resonated because it, it, in some ways it's a, it's a sign of the of the political times. Uh, Lindsey Graham um, was subpoenaed by uh, the special purpose grand jury investigating uh, the Georgia case, um, and um, it had to do with a a conversation after the election that he had with Brad Raffensperger in which 
you know, there was a Raffenberger believed uh, that Graham was trying to pressure him uh, about about votes. Um, and Graham Graham's reaction was, you know, I am going to fight this uh, as far as I need to. I'm going to fight this all the way to the Supreme Court. This is the the weaponization uh, of the law, uh, as he called it. And basically, he was saying, you know, no two bit. Um, local uh, DA is going to force uh, me, a senator, to have to testify in 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 the in the grand jury. Uh, I'm protected by the speech and debate clause and all of these, you know, kind of constitutional uh, uh, protections. Um, and he loses. He loses the legal fight. Um, and uh, and at the end of the day, he has to testify. Well, we spoke to people who witnessed his testimony. People who were in the grand jury room, um, and uh, their account. Uh, um, uh, which is is that he uh, goes into the grand jury and, you know, in, in, in our sources words, immediately turns on a dime and throws Trump under the bus. Yeah. You know, among other things, uh, he says to the grand jurors, if Martians had told Donald Trump uh, that the election had been stolen, he would have believed it. In a sort of lighter side note, he also accused Donald Trump of of, of uh, cheating in golf games. They 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 played golf together uh, uh, quite a few times. Um, and then the most kind of surreal scene uh, that takes place after his testimony, where he walks out of the grand jury room, uh, which happens to be very close to Fonnie Willis's office. There's kind of an ante room there in between them. Fonnie Willis is tended to come out and thank some of the high profile, more high profile witnesses. Lindsey Graham, you know, strides up to her and says, thank you so much for letting me testify. Uh, it was cathartic. And then he actually hugs her. Uh, and the we, we had a witness to that extraordinary scene um, who said that Bonnie Willis's um, reaction was whatever, dude. Um, so it, to, to, to me, to us, it, it's an interesting story also about, uh, Lindsey Graham, um, and a lot of Republican, uh, Republican office holders, members of Congress who, uh, swore allegiance to, to Donald Trump. Um, and, and sometimes you see them saying these things publicly, uh, but their private beliefs may be very different. Uh, Michael, I, I want to have you kick off and uh, please Daniel if, um, add anything that you deem appropriate but on what was my favorite chapter which is chapter six just just the disbelief <laughs> factor um, it's called the QAnon commission or or as I call it are you kidding me that's that should be the chapter as, as I renamed it uh, go ahead Michael talk about that chapter yeah I mean it's one of the uh, underappreciated uh, uh, parts of this story and um, uh, should be studied a lot more closely because it shows just how crazy this got Um a, we focused in that chapter on a guy named Lynn Wood, celebrated trial lawyer. You may remember him. He had represented uh, Richard Jewell, the man falsely accused of being the Olympic bomber in the Olympics in 1996, uh, represented all sorts of celebrity clients, the Ramses and uh, the parents of John Benet Ramsey and lots of others. But by the time of the 2020 election, he had gone full bore blown QAnon. He'd become a complete uh, believer in this crazy conspiracy theory about uh, sedistic cabal of pedophiles who were manipulating the government uh, and running, uh, uh, running things in Washington, trying to sabotage Donald Trump's presidency. Um, and he's the guy that Donald Trump Jr., I mentioned him before, brings in uh, when he flies down to uh, Atlanta after the election to be the public face of Trump's challenge to the election. Um, uh, and he sets up a command center, he, uh, Lynn Wood, uh, at his uh, plantation in Tomat called Tomatley in South Carolina. Sidney Powell comes in. Uh, 
uh, Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor, comes in. Uh, um, all sorts of ex-CIA intel guys. It was kind of like a Star Wars bar scene. Um, all gathered in this plantation in Georgia to come up with somehow the evidence that's going to um, uh, uh turn the election for Donald Trump. And they've got all sorts of crazy ideas. There's a video from a former Hugo Chavez security guard that they get all excited about. There's uh, 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 zooming in uh, to the uh, uh, to the proceedings is this guy, Ron Watkins from Japan. Ron Watkins was the administer of the QAnon uh, uh, platform uh, where all this crazy stuff was posted. And I guess the important takeaway from this is Trump is talking to them on a regular basis. When Sidney Powell gets the video of, of, of the Hugo Chavez security guy, she gets all excited, calls up the White House. Uh, Trump calls right back. The guys came through. They came up. They got the stuff. Trump is excited. He's pumped. They send the video to um, uh, on a chartered jet to Washington. And the video was nonsense. In fact, the Trump campaign itself, its own research department, debunked the idea that, you know, Venezuelan socialists had any uh, role in this at all, but Trump believed it. Um, and um, he's talking to these people. He's talking to Lynn Wood. He's, in, he's encouraging him on go knock him dead. He says in a phone call to, um, uh, to Trump and Powell on December 2nd, they're in Atlanta for what they would call the Jericho March, surround the governor's mansion and blow horns until Brian Kemp relents and calls a special session of the legislature. Go knock him dead is Trump's words uh, at that time. That's the kind of sort of crazy atmosphere um, uh, that was going on. Um, and in, in many ways, the role of QAnon uh, in helping write the script for Trump's challenge to the election. Daniel, one of the challenges, it seems to me, uh, writing a book where the story has not officially concluded is that you run the risk of being caught up in real time events. And you all are certainly caught up in real time events. And I would be remiss if I if I didn't get your thoughts now that District Attorney Fonnie Willis has acknowledged a personal relationship with Nathan Wade. Who is Nathan Wade and why is this critical to the case in Georgia? Uh, yeah, it's a great question because, uh, you know, there has been so much written about Nathan Wade in the past few weeks, um, but all in the context of this uh, controversy uh, and very little really written about um what his contribution to the case has been. Uh, and before any of this had happened, we had done uh, a fair amount of reporting uh, about uh, Nathan Wade's uh, role uh, in, in the case. It, what's important to understand is he was not hired to be uh, either the lead trial lawyer in the case or to be the sort of legal architect uh, of the case. Nathan Wade was always uh, going to be a kind of a, more of a behind the scenes player, uh, a guy who organized this very uh, complicated and, and you know, uh, you know, uh, labor intensive, you know, so many documents, you know, so many potential defendants and. Um, uh, you know, you, you really had to have someone who, who who had that kind of those kind of organizational strengths um, and and someone who could just be a, a strong behind the scenes player. That's what Nathan Wade did. He ran the grand jury process. He helped uh, hammer hammer out uh, immunity deals. Um, we spoke to uh, people in the special purpose grand jury who watched Nathan Wade uh, do his work um, for over hundreds of, of hours um, guiding the the grand jurors through this very complicated case, uh, the 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 dozens of witnesses, the thousands of of documents, all of the kinds of things that uh, that go on inside a grand jury. And by all accounts, uh, he did an excellent job. One of the people we interviewed uh, in, in the grand jury was a lawyer, the only grand the only lawyer uh, in the grand jury um, who has a lot of experience um, and and was. And was impressed. Said he was a very strong and and effective lawyer uh, inside the grand jury room. So um, and and you know and 
you know, beyond that, Fonnie Willis, uh, I, I think, hired him because a, cu- a couple of reasons. One, she believed that he had a a kind of a thick hide, the kind of strong exterior that would be able to withstand the scorched earth tactics that she knew would be coming from Trump's lawyers and and the and the lawyers of all of the other uh, uh, defendants in this case, um, and that she needed someone uh, like that. She also wanted someone who had a lot of experience as a defense lawyer because defense lawyers uh, would be able to see. Uh, more clearly, in some ways, the holes uh, in their case, and 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 Nathan Wade, um, you know, has been a a respected defense lawyer. He's not done complex felony cases like a RICO case before. But then again, neither have most people in Georgia or most defense lawyers really anywhere in this country. They're they're not that many people who do those kinds of cases. And last thing I'll say about this is Nathan Wade did get a chance in the response to the. Uh, original um, Michael Roman uh, motion that had all of these allegations and that questioned Nathan Wade's uh, uh, credentials did get a chance to lay out um, his experience in in an affidavit that he that he filed a sworn affidavit um, in which he goes through a timeline of his career and among other things he says that he's done many felony cases in both state and federal court um, and he also um, he had been a, a judge in Cobb County. Uh, and he uh, he did uh, judicial uh, trainings of new judges, um, and that's actually um, how we got to know Fonnie Willis in, in the first place. I'll just say a couple of quick things about this. Look, it, clearly it was a lapse in judgment you know, on her part to have this relationship with Nathan Wade, according to the filing last Friday. It was a, a relationship that began after um uh he was hired but um still um you know it was a blind spot on her part she should have thought that through she did not she should have consulted an ethics advisor uh, it's not she she did not but all that said you know taking a step back you know there's going to be a hearing uh, uh next week before judge McAfee about all this and if judge McAfee asks Ashley Merchant the the lawyer for um uh, Michael Roman the defendant who brought this motion uh alleging a conflict of interest uh relating to the relationship between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade if he just asked the simple question can you explain why you think this has prejudiced your client um I have no idea what she could say because there's absolutely no evidence it did prejudice her client or deprive him of his con- uh, congressional rights or show some uh, uh, prejudice or or bias in the course of bringing the case. There's nothing about the relationship between Willis and Wade that in any way affects any of the defendants. So I think on some degree, this whole controversy is a bit overblown. But we'll see how Judge McAfee uh, treats it because he's going to be the decider on this. Well, Mike, I'm going to stay with you on on that last piece uh, because as you both know well, we also live in the court of public opinion. So because of the, um, my words, um, there's a level of arrogance created by this that feeds into the witch hunt narrative. Um, does that have an impact on this at all? In your, I mean, look, I, there's no question, you know, Trump has riled up his base talking about the lovebirds and how they should all be disqualified and all that. I mean, you know, basically what we're talking about here, by the way, is a consensual relationship between two middle-aged professionals. Um, not exactly a, a, a scandalous uh, a relationship on its face. Um, uh, but um, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, it's clearly, you know, stirred up the Georgia Republicans in the legislature. Uh, you know, Trump is going to do everything he can to stoke it. His lawyer, Stephen Sato, has joined the motion, uh, adding a bit about how, you know, Fonnie Willis is playing the racial angle as though that's not what Donald Trump has been doing from the start and throughout this whole, uh, throughout the whole thing. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, unquestionably uh, uh, put a cloud over the case. Um, 
I think, depending on how it plays out with Judge McAvee, if he dismisses it, I mean, you know, the cloud will start to dissipate. But, you know, we got to wait and see. I mean, as a matter of law, um, it's hard to see how this goes anywhere. Uh, Finally, Daniel. um, Yeah. Hey, sorry, I was on mute. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. um, Michael earlier mentioned um, Roy Barnes turning down the case and saying that he'd need a bodyguard. Um, My question to you is because Georgia in the former president's eyes had so many Republicans in, um, so that would, it made it appear to be ground zero. Any thoughts why the Republicans in Georgia have stood up to the former president in ways that Republicans in other areas, for example, the House of Representatives, have not stood up to the former president? It's an excellent question. And look, I don't I don't think it's because there's something in the water in in Georgia. I think, you know, you asked a question earlier in this interview about why we uh, focus so much on these individual characters. Um, And um, and I think uh, the the from 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 what I can tell, it just happens to be the case that in Georgia, there was a a number of people who were in uh, in in critical positions um, who had um, a, a certain, you know, certain principles uh, that they that they stood by. I mean, there's a very poignant um, uh, scene or, or or interview in um, in in the book with Brad Raffsenberger. Brad Raffsenberger and his wife Trish, uh, Trisha had been through a terrible tragedy uh, with their with their son, um, who was a, a talented, intelligent. A kid, a great student, uh, but had become victim to a serious uh, drug problem, um, and uh, did 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 time um, in in jail, um, and was going before judges, um, and um, and ultimately uh, succumbed to it. He died of a of a fentanyl overdose, uh, and this was a huge trauma, as you can imagine, for the parents uh, of of this kid. Um, and at, at one point, um, Brad Raffsenberger uh, said, "Look, you know, at when about the uh, the pressure campaign from Trump and everything that he, he withstood, we've been through worse, you know. And and so, at the end of the day, it, it really is about the the, the makeup uh, and the character and the principles of of, of the individuals um, who um, who were uh, put in the." in the situation of having to decide what to do. Um, and Georgia is just a, a, you know, a kind of powerful example of, of the, um, uh, of the ability of, of, of individuals, as I said before, to stand in the breach. The book, find me the votes, uh, a hard charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president and a plot to steal an American election. Um, our authors uh, have been the guests for the hour, uh, Michael Isakoff, Dan Clyde, and gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Public Rally. Much, much appreciated. Thank Myron, you. Thanks so much for having us. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook, as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.